radio transmission by me, Donald Dean. Make me an island. Hello there, and welcome to the June 2021 edition of Make Me an Island. Now, this is the first time I've been speaking to you from outside the pale for a whole six months, so you may well be able to hear the difference. I know I can feel it. Question is, asking as a North Kerry man now, can you feel it? Jokes aside, it's lovely to have your company here on episode 48 from one of the most southerly and strikingly beautiful tips of the western seaboard in summertime. Unlike the Reverend Utah Smith, the wings I have been spreading over the last week are metaphorical ones, but the freedom into which I've been cast is no less divine. Thank you, Ireland. Before we get started, a word of thanks to our patrons who continue to support the making of these islands unconditionally. Without your help, the game would long since have been up, so when we play, we're playing for you, and your commitment to the cause means everything. The shows will be a little more spaced out over the summer months again, but there are some special episodes in the pipeline. And watch out too for the second episode of We Are The Makers, which is out next week on June 26th. Now, whatever the opposite of a magnetic pull is, that's what I've been feeling when it comes to social media lately. And always have been, really, if I'm being honest. But I would still like to spread the word about Make Me An Island. Speaking from a head-resting position several feet beneath the sand here, I'd like to think old-fashioned word of mouth still counts, so feel free to sing our praises to anyone in your world who you think might benefit from listening to what's going on in ours. And if the urge to post or tweet becomes irresistible, don't let me stop you. You can control that, as they say in Kingston and the Kingdom. Now, our guest today is someone we've been angling to have on the show since the very start. My love of the music of Steve Cooney goes all the way back to the explosions that went off in the West Kerry sky when he met the Begley family and teamed up with Seamus to open a musical fireworks factory, thereby effectively reinventing the form of traditional Irish dance music. I think I speak for most of us when I say that we all felt the force of that blow. I'm going to read you a quote from another very articulate musician, Mike Scott, about his fellow troubadour that beautifully sums up the impact he made in this regard. Steve Cooney revolutionised Irish music. Before Cooney, string accompanists, guitarists and bazooki players strummed along with jigs and reels providing depth and chordal colour, but rarely any driving or eruptive power. Cooney changed that forever. He introduced backbeat and an entire vernacular of triplets, skirls, rallies, stop-starts and dizzying runs of impossible chords which no one else had yet figured out how to do. His influence on Irish traditional guitar is akin to Hendrix's on rock. He raised the bar and the rest of the world is still catching up. Since Cooney, and in his image, guitar accompanists have driven Irish music with momentum and visceral energy, though none has yet matched Cooney's genius. The sheer magnitude of the work and the range of styles he's mastered means a measure of that same genius is impossible to gauge. I wouldn't even begin to try and sum it up. And I think Scott does it nicely there, and he'd know. Best then to narrow the focus and shine a light on the immense beauty in the detail. Our 
our chosen topic today then is his most recent release, the album of tunes of the Irish harpers for solo guitar called Kjol Arsa Klarshi. There's ancient magic at work here, as these tunes were either composed or collected from the beginning of the 1600s to the end of the 1700s, and no better conduit for that power to shine through than Steve Cooney. Or Rising Sun by Steve Cooney from Kjol Orsa Clarshee. So the reason I met Steve was he was in Dublin this week to record a set of tunes from the album for the Tradition Now series at the National Concert Hall. I was lucky enough to be able to sit in the hall for the rehearsal and watched him nail those mind-bogglingly complicated lines time and again. It was dazzling enough to bypass the emptiness and fill the room. A staggering feat, but the words, by any standards, have no place here. Thank you. 
So if you go to stevecooneymusic.com, you can buy this album with 14 wonderful tracks of music for 10 euro to download. But if you spend 15, you get the CD. And for that, you get Steve's lovely notes too. So that's Kade Shin Dante Shin, about which he says... This old version of the song, in a major key compared with the minor key of the modern version, is a light-hearted defence of a hedonistic lifestyle that was collected from Dennis O'Hamsig, 1695 to 1807, by Bunting, who translates the title as What is that to them that had not anything to say to it? Reminds me of the Beckett line, They don't know what the master of them that do did, so it does. Look, I'll show you. Give it here. According to Harper, Arthur O'Neill, this well-known composition by Ruri Dal O'Cahan was composed to acknowledge his acceptance of an apology given to him by Lady Eglinton in Scotland. 
I've commented before on Make Mean Island, how an argument can be a good source for some call and response vocal fireworks and music with soul. But here is an example of an apology being the basis of a sublime tune that is well into its fifth century of brightening the days and nights of those who hear it. I think you'll agree that it shines very brightly indeed under the fingers of Steve Cooney. So before we get into chatting, I should point out that we've already resolved to arrange a longer meeting later in the summer in Donegal, where extra time will facilitate a far deeper dive into his work. But for now, we're concentrating on the singular magic of Keol Arsa Clarshi er Eigling. <laughs> at the time, so hypnotically beautiful, so, so wonderful. I was just wondering, you know, when you made the album back uh, a couple of years ago, your plans, I think you mentioned it, that your plans were not to really do much, to just make it. It came about, the recording came about through my friend Martin Hayes, the fiddle player, the great fiddle player, who challenged me uh, because he knows I'm a studio hound and I, I love overdubbing a bit of this guitar, a bit of that guitar, build up the layers 
like as if it was a watercolor painting you build up a series of washes so I might put a, a pair of nylon string guitars here and capoed steel strung guitars there and a high strung guitar there to build up a, a picture which is what I like to do and still like to do but uh, Martin said just do a record where there's no overdubs where it's just solo guitar and nothing else so that was a good challenge so I, I thought about it and agreed to do it and um, I'm glad I did it but at the time it was really just to put these tunes down as a marker uh, something that could be done and maybe a reference point for other guitar players or for my young fella to kind of look at or just to to say this could be done on the guitar mm -hmm. because the guitar is a plucked stringed instrument and the harp is a plucked stringed instrument the harp is the most traditional of all Irish uh, instruments well you could argue that the pipes are uh, traditional as well but the harp occupies a special place as it's the national emblem of Ireland and yet in the hierarchy of things in traditional music the harp is at the apex and the guitar is at the nadir, uh, the guitar is at the bottom of the deck. Maybe, I'm not sure about the baron, might be in there somewhere. <laughs> else. But the guitar is not respected sufficiently within the hierarchy of the tradition of Irish music. And I think it's important that it does get more respect. And I, I think it's good that if more guitarists play more harp tunes, the balance might begin to shift a little bit. Yeah. The, the, so when it comes to the material and, and the, the number of tracks, there's 14 on, on the album mm. and, and in this program for the concert hall you played 11. Um, were some of them already in your repertoire or did you discover all of them in the research, in the course of the research? Uh, there were only two or three that were in my repertoire. But when you say repertoire, some tunes you have at the back of your head and you could bluff them in a, in, in a session yeah. but you wouldn't be fit to perform them uh, yeah. on a concert stage two or three of them I would have had under the fingers but in the end I wound up changing them all radically My I changed the tunings that I use um, I, I would normally use the tuning of drop D where you take the bass E string tune it down to D which is a common tuning in um, traditional music Artie McGlynn I was delighted when I first met Artie and realized that he used drop D tuning as well because it's the most practical tuning from my point of view um, we tend not to use the standard tuning which has, has a bass string of E but most traditional music is in D or chords keys that are relatives of D so uh, but when I was play, playing the harp tunes and I had learnt some of them in this drop D tuning I wasn't happy with what I could do, the limitations of it, so I experimented and wound up doing the majority in a drop C tuning. I tuned the bass string to C and the A string to G, which gave me the ability to let bass notes resonate, and that created a more harp-like sonic texture, I suppose, yeah. so I could have a bit of access to the higher strings without having to hold down bass notes. So. Um, so the tuning had a lot to do with it. So even though I might have known the some tunes in my head, I didn't have them under the fingers at all. So I only had a couple of them. Well, I had a few of them. But uh, So then it was just research, I suppose, which involved listening to Harper's. 
I was influenced by the work of Alicia Kelly, who I know very well, and then Kathleen Nocnan from Galway. She's a Tipperary Harper, lives in Galway. Kathleen Nocnan, who has done fantastic research into the brothers Canellan or Conlon from South Sligo in, in uh, the 1600s. And she's done terrific research. Uh, you'd find her book and CD. And uh, William and Thomas, Tom, Tom Conlon, I suppose they wrote some great tunes, fantastic tunes that not everyone realizes that were written by them. So uh, I was influenced by Kathleen and other harpers, all the great harpers I listened to, and not only just listened to, studied their interpretation of certain tunes, because the manuscript is only ever going to give you the bare bones of the tune. But how do you interpret that? What rhythm do you put to it? By rhythm, I mean what groove do you put to it? What swing do you put to it? Uh, is it martial or is it easygoing? Or what tempo is it? Because they weren't able to indicate tempo marks. So there's an awful lot of conjecture. Mm -hmm. um, so I listened to what people had to play and then some Scottish harpers as well because there's a common repertoire with Scotland. And of course the prime source of the harp music is Edward Bunting's 1792 uh, well, his collection was written after 1792, but there was a harp gathering in 1792 uh, at which Edward Bunting was commissioned uh, to write down the tunes the harpers played. So that is our great source book. And if anyone's interested, the, Colette Maloney has done terrific research into that. But the Bunting collection is, the, is I suppose, I don't want to use the word Bible, but the Bunting collection is the is the database mm. for what was being played at the end of the 1700s, which was the flourishing period of Irish harp music. The, so so in, in my own reading and, and finding out about Bunting, he was just a teenager when, when, yeah. when the assembly happened. Mm. I find that incredible. Um, yeah, so that's, that fact that this, this lad was, was so young doing this thing that was, has become, that is, yeah. so significant. Yeah, he was a Church of Ireland organist and got the gig to write down, preserve the tunes of, of the harp gathering. But it changed his life. And for the next number of decades, he was working on those tunes editing collections, adding accompaniments to them. Um, he appointed scribes, or he had a whole team in the end. Uh, there was one harper called Arthur O'Neill, a fantastic character, and um, he was one of Bunting's informants, and uh, he gave not only a lot of tunes, but the cleaners and the customs of, of the people to Bunting. So Bunting had him put on a pension, and got a scribe to write down his life story. And if anyone's interested, you'll find it there on the internet called The Memoirs of Arthur O'Neill. And you just type in Memoirs of Arthur O'Neill. Mm -hmm. And you get a tremendous insight into the life of the Harpers in, in the 1700s there. Because yeah. he was just after the time of Carolyn, the greatest of the bards. And uh, there were many stories. He knew people who knew Carolyn, so he knew the stories firsthand. Right. Yeah, so, mm. yeah, and and in in the, in doing the research, the actual physical 
manuscripts, yeah. Steve. Um, like, what was that? Is it just uh, is it just the tunes uh, notated, or is there other notes, or, or how does it feel to be with those pages? It is an amazing feeling. Well, uh, the main book that I, I went to um, Queen's University Library in Belfast, and they're very very helpful there, and. Um, it's good to know in advance what you're looking for because the manuscripts are very extensive and as I said Colette Maloney has um, annotated the manuscripts and you can hunt through for what you want and ask to see the originals but I had an idea what I was looking for first were tunes gathered from Dennis Hempson or Donegal Halsig from McGilligan and Derry. He was the, the old lad who played with the long fingernails. And yeah. Very old lad. Right? Very, very old. By the time that assembly was, he was almost 100 years old. Yeah, exactly. And he lived for some years later. So uh, he was born in the last years of the previous century and died in the, in the first years of the next yeah. century. So he lived across three centuries. He's an amazing character. And uh, I met one of his descendants, who's an American professor of uh, literature. Yeah, a fantastic uh, character. So I wanted to hunt down tunes taken from him, but particularly a set of variations on the Coolin that was played by Dennis Hampson, uh, that were composed by the Kerry Harper Con Lyons. And you hear stories in um, the memoirs of Arthur O'Neill and other places that Con Lyons was this incredible harper who wrote these amazing tunes and, and um, was having great crack everywhere. He was employed by Lord Antrim and they used to go on drinking sprees together over to London. And, but he was supposed to be this most terrific composer and harper. But there's only one of his compositions in existence, which is Miss Hamilton. Uh, but he's known to have composed several sets of variations on the Coolin, and Dennis Hempson was playing them. I don't know when he wrote them, maybe 1730, 1740, but 50 or 60 years later, Dennis Hempson, the old lab, was, was playing them as part of his repertoire. So it gives an insight into how the tunes would travel, that a set of improvisations on the Coolin played by one harper would be picked up by another and go into the repertoire. I think it's a very interesting process. So that was my raison d'etre for going to Belfast in the first place was to get sight of these variations. And uh, one thing led on to another because the, they let me look at uh, the, in Queen's University, they let me uh, see his fair copy which was before he published it. So. I was kind of expecting to get the white linen gloves, you oh, see. Yeah, yeah. But they told me that that's a, a myth. You, you don't get the gloves, no. The gloves aren't supposed to be good for the oh, right. vellum or the manuscripts. So it was, it was an amazing feeling. Yeah. And they very kindly scanned the... So the having them literally under the finger, like... Under the finger, yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. the neatness and dexterity mm. of his writing. Mm. And they very kindly scanned the, the tunes I wanted. And then when I had the tunes that I wanted, of course, um, oh, there's another, oh, there's another. Mm, there's one from Mayo, so I send it to friends in Mayo, and it, one thing leads you on to another. But I recommend to, to anybody who's interested to go up and have a look. It, it gives you this direct connection. And also, like, it, it's connected with that political history of Ireland in 1798, and the United Irishman, Wolf Tome, was one of the committee members of mm -hmm. that harp assembly. Mm. And the harp was by th at that time very much part of the, the emblem as well, wasn't it? Used in the, the 
Yeah, it was, was, yeah. was, yeah. yeah. Um, the, the, the idea of, of getting that insight, Steve, and, and you know, directly touching the pages, but it must feel like when you're playing the tunes, and, and, you, and, and anyway, to me it felt like, and sitting in the hall yesterday, I was lucky while you were rehearsing, to hear them realized in such a beautiful way hundreds of years later, mm. uh, and for it to feel so good. And, and um, yeah, I mean, I'm speaking from, from the point of view of somebody who's, mm. who's taking that in. Mm. How does it feel to play those? I mean, it feels like mm. yeah, there's a very direct connection there between across time. Yeah, there's, there's a reverence you feel that you feel a responsibility. I mean, you can't be being disrespectful. But I also had to, I, I mentioned a minute ago that I was listening to various Harper's interpretations of the tunes and then I looked at the manuscripts. But ultimately it came down to a thing of, well, if I was that Harper, what would I do here? And uh, sometimes the manuscripts would keep on going in the flow of tunes and then um, one tune in particular, I thought, oh no, if I was that Harper, I'd stop there and let the notes ring because there was a, say, a cascade of notes coming down. And I'd say, he wouldn't have just gone up, off, he wouldn't have started into another run. He would have let that ring out. So as a musician, you have to take certain decisions according to the, your own lights, which might override the technicalities of the manuscript. Mm. And um, because each time, each rotation of the tune is going to be played different differently and uh, the scribe can only write either what was played one time or a synthesis of what was played a number of times in other words a proto-skeleton of the tune but it never would have been played identically to that by the harpers because there's this constant improvisation going on and, and uh, that's known to have existed for hundreds of years the, the concept of improvisation in Irish music it's a wonderful thing yeah. The, the actual sonic aspect, um, which is working with that very, you know, like compared to your normal process, which is where you're, where you're allowed, to, or sorry, you're able to build up the canvas in that, that beautiful way, layered way. How did it feel then to be back with just, you know, a single instrument uh, and, and channeling the power of that, which you do so effectively on that album? Uh. Hard to say. It's it's definitely a challenge, and you see, I mean, I don't want to be bad mouthing myself, but I've very limited technique. And years ago, I stopped using, apart from if I was playing the Kerry Polkas, the second finger because the, the, there's a tonal difference between my different fingers, and I prefer the tone I get on the first finger, which means I tend to use or I only I use the first finger. It's more of an African, if I had to justify it, I'd say, well, that's what the Africans do. That's what they do in Mali and in Africa, so I, I could justify it that way. But um, when you look at the great Irish guitarists like John Feely and people like that, they're using all their fingers, and that's correct classical technique, is to use all your fingers. But I, unfortunately, am very limited. I only am using one finger and a thumb. Now, uh, uh, that embarrasses me, but it's a kind of a... A logistical decision that I take because I want a consistency of tone and um, so I'm not really answering your question but what I'm saying is I'm slightly embarrassed by sitting on the stage and playing this thing with the, with the kind of the one finger 
Uh, I'm just laughing at the use of the word embarrassment, but no, but it just um, so just that the the dynamic and and when you're playing the Kerry Polkas right, mm. and and the difference between what's happening there and just what you do, what you were doing all day yesterday, which mm. was just this beautifully finely wrought thing. Um, I mean, there's a, 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 such a difference there, but it's still the same instrument. That's yeah, the same <laughs> instrument. Yeah. And, uh, well, you're a Kerry man, Donald, and you know what that energy is like. And yeah. I think this, it's very vibrant, the music in Kerry, Schlieplucher, West Kerry, yeah. North Kerry. It has this energy about it, which I think is connected to dancing. Mm. And I don't think you can get too precious about about the music in, uh, in terms of the dance music. Sure enough, you can say, okay, well, these sawn trees or these... Um, more chamber pieces or the harp music, there's a certain point at, at which they're appropriate. But I had to realize that when I was in Kerry, these guys who've been up on the mountain all day after sheep or have been doing silage or have been fishing, and they, they get home and uh, they want to scrub up, go down the pub, have a few pints and dance and just go wild. And there's no point being sanctimonious about how you think music should be. They want to go wild, so you have to yeah. provide the mechanism for them to go wild with. Yeah. And they need you to play hard to provide that beat, a strong beat that they can dance to. And uh, yeah. so there's no point being up on some kind of artistic high horse yeah. when you're down in, <laughs> down in yeah. West Kerry. Mm. Um, I love the idea as well of, um, of, of, you know, and it's true, I guess, that what, what, what Canon Casey was afraid of was just the power of that thing, that, you know, that it's limitless. And people, I suppose, uh, people touching and people getting off with each other and stuff. I think that had to do with the anti-jazz. Yeah, yeah. In, in Leitrim in the 30s, was it? There were yeah. thousands of people marching in, against jazz, the down with jazz, mm -hmm. you know, in Father Ted, down with this sort of thing. Yeah. I, I think that relates to the anti-jazz, mm. uh, which is very interesting. I think more research needs to be done on that mm. um, because there's a crossover into a racist attitude mm -hmm. that it was jungle music, it was African music, mm -hmm. and... Uh, the way people danced to the jazz music was considered unseemly by mm. the mores of the society of that time, mm. whereas the traditional Irish music was kind of more uh, safer, I suppose, mm -hmm. on, yeah. on that, that way. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, the, the, and one of the things I wanted to ask after, again, seeing you playing yesterday, Steve, is just how, how does it work when it comes to... First of all, how did it feel to perform those pieces? But then, how, when it comes to going from one to the other and remembering those lines and the complexity and the sheer uh, complicatedness of, of some of those lines, how does it... We, uh, the lines themselves, the compositional lines of the tunes are long. And there was one... I was learning one particular tune, Shaok Naherna, the Hawk of Ballyshannon, which is supposedly taken from Port Athol, but um, it was played, but it was taken down from Carolyn, it was passed on through Carolyn, but it was composed by Ruri Dalo Kahan from, from Derry. Yeah. Um, Carolyn loved the tune and, and played it, but well, I first heard it from uh, a group, Winchidabara, and uh, 
but the complexity of the line, in fact, the length of the line, I, I mean, it must be a minute and a half long, the first part. And the thing that struck me about that, Donald, was not so much the complexity of it, but the average person's ability to take in and hold in their brain a line that was more than a minute and a half long. Like, they, people talk about these days about the people's concentration span being eight seconds or something. If, if you look at any video that's on the television, cut, 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 everything is being cut every second or two seconds. Uh, and, and, and this is like one concept, one phrase that lasts for a minute and a half. It gave me an insight into people's ability to hold large amounts of knowledge in their brains at one time. This is the first part of the tune before he even goes into the second part of the tune. So uh, I thought that was, well, that was a realization I had when I was learning that tune anyway, that the vast nature of uh, the complexity of the lines that people could hold in their heads. Mm. Uh, mm. Wow, that's fantastic. I mean, it, it struck me several times, uh, you know, in the opening lines about the length of them and... and mm. Um, Which I think is good. See, I think we need to re-educate ourselves uh, in terms of extending our concentration spans. I, I really believe that we need to be going into longer spaces and having listened to longer pieces of music mm. instead of compressing, compressing, compressing all the time because this is an inexorable drive that for things to get shorter and shorter and shorter concentration spans. Mm -hmm. So I think we should take proactive action to extend our concentrations. Yeah. Starting here. <laughs> Beautiful. Mm. Um, the, um, um, when it comes to the actual playing then, Steve, like how in your head is it, is it, are you thinking ahead or how does it... No, um, no, I wish I was. In fact, if... If I was better at it, I would be thinking ahead. But you're in the moment, and you're just kind of surfing that wave. Yeah. You're just trying to stay on the board and not yeah. fall off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I must say, I haven't really played these tunes for a couple of years. Yeah. One reason I did the record, Donald, was uh, I have... I had intended, and I have since completed, a record on electric guitar, because the electric guitar is an instrument that isn't fully respected in traditional music and I think it should be because I think it's a beautiful instrument uh, but it's associated with rock music, it is rock but it's actually <laughs> how you play the electric guitar has got nothing to do with what style it is yeah. and you, if you put a cap on an electric guitar uh, because the sustain is so long it's, I think it sounds really like a metal strung harp um, yeah, right. Uh, so playing an electric guitar with the fingers, with a capo on a Stratocaster or something like that, it's got this beautiful sustain. I, I think it's very similar to the wire-strung harp. And I think it's far closer to the wire-strung harp than any other traditional instrument. Like, I, I totally disagree with the concept that the accordion is more traditional than the electric guitar because I could make a case, a strong case, that when you put a capo on a Fender Stratocaster and finger pick a harp tune, it sounds very, very close. And if you played the same harp tune on an accordion and had some kind of time capsule and asked a person a thousand years ago, yeah. which is the most traditional, yeah. they would pick the electric guitar. Yeah. So uh, I have a record done on electric guitar, but 
I thought she and what are the tunes or what, what are, what's the music I'm playing it in, in a bit more of a bluesy style but I'm playing in um, the traditional many traditional tunes uh, so I thought if I'm doing something on the electric guitar I'd better do a very traditional record first which was like uh, honoring the tradition yeah. of the harp tune so that was one of the reasons for doing the harp record was to honor the tradition yeah. as it stands yeah. honor the old harpers uh, before I, I stepped out into the electric guitar oh you did that so magically nobody else has done that really I mean there hasn't been anybody with this great uh, Artie McGlynn has done great work on the guitar and then Tony McManus the great Scottish guitarist probably the best of, of everybody mm-hmm. has People have, uh, have played the tunes. I know John Feely's done Carolyn tunes, I suppose, because it, it would seem to suit the, the genre. But um, I suppose a lot of this is the steel strung guitar. Um, Steve, I think we're nearly there. Um, maybe maybe we could just talk specifically. Uh, one of the pieces that I love the most is, is Miss Hamilton. Yeah. Um, See, there's your Kerry blood. <laughs> speaking to me with her. Um, but, uh, but it is, uh, yeah, so beautiful. It's very tender. Yeah, so Miss tender. Hamilton, yeah, but it was by Con Lyons. He, he's known in the books as Cornelius Lyons. Mm. But sometimes uh, a person's full name isn't what they were called. I think he would have been known as Con, mm-hmm. Con Lyons. Mm. In fact, uh, there's a reference to him as Con Lyons in the memoirs of Arthur O'Neill. Mm-hmm. Uh, Con Lyons, Harper to Lord Ventry. So it's a beautiful piece, very tender. Very tender. He wrote a lot more pieces, but uh, isn't we didn't. it amazing that, like, you know, for somebody who who clearly meant so much, that we're left with this, but at least there's that, you know, and maybe that's what makes it even more strikingly beautiful. Yeah. Is it, it's existence. Exactly. Yeah, he was from North Kerry himself. Yeah, Ratu, yeah. I think. Ratu, yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, yeah you've done your research. <laughs> Dancing, done in Ratu. Steve, it's so hard not to shake your hand. Thank you so right. much. Right, Donald Gurma Hagadakara. Right, Bemidikan Kalua. Right. Right.